Good morning. What an outstanding day this is. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 25. This is our freedom teaching series for freedom. Christ has set us free. Title of this weekend's message is The Promise of the Gospel. The Promise of the Gospel. I don't know if you know this, but God is doing something quite spectacular here at Desert Breeze. Oftentimes when I talk to pastors in, in the community here and we talk about uh, doing a, a night of prayer, when most churches call for a night of prayer, they are fortunate to have just a handful of people show up. And we did a night of prayer this last Wednesday night. We called it Linger. And there was close to 200 people that showed up. Can you believe that? That is amazing, and what an amazing time we had. It was awesome. If you missed it, we'll be doing it again, and uh, you would really enjoy it. And what's happening here, God's stirring our hearts. He's doing some amazing things in our lives. As you guys know, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you do what? When you seek me with all of your heart. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So when we seek after him, he reveals himself to us in an amazing way. That's what we're seeing here. Pretty incredible. Let me start off by asking you just a few questions. You don't need to answer out loud. Is our salvation through God's promise? Is our salvation through God's promise or our performance? Here's another way you could uh, ask that question. Are the blessings of God conditional? or unconditional, or are they, are they conditional or unconditional? Unconditional or conditional, to put it in the, kind of, the same way that I asked that first question. So is our salvation through God's promise or our performance, are the blessings of God unconditional or conditional? And when I talk about salvation, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about our justification, sanctification, glorification, where he sets us free from the penalty of sin, forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, future. Not just talking about that. We're also talking about sanctification, the holiness or the wholeness where he takes our lives and begins to put them back together. We experience a great deal of wholeness in our lives. But even our ticket to heaven, we have all of that. Does that all happen? Justification, sanctification, glorification. Is that something that is based on God's promise or our performance. Now, here's what the false teachers were saying as they were infiltrating this region of churches in Galatia as we have been working our way through the book of Galatians. It's on your notes there. False teachers were saying, believe and obey and you'll be saved. They were saying it's performance-based. But Paul was teaching the gospel. The gospel says, believe and be saved and you'll obey. It's promise-based. Did you guys understand that? You guys here this morning? Let me hear a little bit of feedback here. Just go, yay, or whoa, or I'm awake, or cool, that's excellent, I'm glad. So there's a difference between the two. There's a difference between this, uh, the two of those. And so let me give you just a quick summary of, of this, the beginning of chapter three. You can see there on your notes, Galatians chapter three, verses one through five. Here's kind of a summary of it. We are not only justified, but also sanctified. So he sets us free from the penalty of sin, but also sets us free from the power of sin working in our lives by grace through faith in Christ. Remember what, what we studied last weekend. What did he say? He said, oh, you foolish desert breezers. 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying, that doesn't make any sense. You began in the Spirit, you're going to continue by the Spirit. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's part of salvation. And that's the, the big idea there. And then in verses 6 to 14, he makes a case proving it from Scripture. Who's the father of our faith? Anybody? Abraham, yeah, so he talks about the life of Abraham, and then the text we're looking at this morning, verses 15 through 25, he uses the example of a legal will, a promise, to underline it, and then discusses the role of God's law, performance, in a gospel-based life. So let me ask you three, these three questions, then we'll pray, we'll look at the text, and then unpack these notes, kind of work through it here. So... If we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not by the law, does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God? Does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God? Here's another question kind of similar to that. If I am saved only by Christ's performance and not by my own, why should I strive to live a holy life? Do I have any obligation to keep God's law and why? That's the big question we're going to look at, but we're going to look at the promise of the gospel and then our performance and where does that performance come in. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me once again? And let's pray. Father God, you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. You have given to us the life of your Son, our Savior, to guarantee that literally thousands thousands of the promises you have made to us in your word to guarantee those promises to us. And we, we confess that we too often live poor when actually we are amazingly rich in you, God. And we pray through the study of your inspired and infallible word and through the work of your Holy Spirit that a greater understanding of the promise of the gospel will infiltrate and invigorate every part of our lives for your indescribable glory and our indestructible joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Take a look at this text. Now, now we, we read starting in verse 15, to give a human example. So he's trying to make it very clear that we not only have begun by grace through faith in Jesus, but we continue on by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's based on promise not our performance, but he's going to talk about our performance in a little bit. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Once, you've been ha once someone has given you a promise, they're not going to annul it, they're not going to ratify it, they're not going to change it. He's made a promise to us. That's the point he's making here. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and then he explains what he means by this, and to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture 
imprisoned, or the, or the law, we could say also in that word, the scripture or the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, if it sounds really confusing there, let's unpack it. Let's try to understand it. And you can see on our notes, three questions we're looking at here. First of all, what is the promise of the gospel? Need to understand that. Second question, what is the purpose of the law? He answers that for us. And then the third question is, how does the promise and law go together? How do they work together here? So here we go. What is the promise of the gospel? Number one, it was the promise of relationship with God to see and experience God along with land and lineage. Land represents fulfillment Milk and honey, remember, the promise of land to Abraham? And so to us, that would mean fulfillment, and then lineage would mean fruit, fruitfulness. We saw that, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. And, and this is a promise God made a number of times to Abraham. I've got it there on your notes, Genesis chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 24. So he really wanted Abraham to know this promise. And so... Um, uh, so here's, here's the essence of the promise that he, he gave to, to Abraham, relationship with God, to see and experience God. Abraham, I'm going to reveal myself to you. Oh, and by the way, out of this experience of me, you're going to have land, fulfillment, and you're going to have lineage. Now, the promise of the gospel, we, we, have, the, we have the same promise, so let me explain what that means. This is what the promise of the gospel is to us. <clears throat> and that is, and this is really in essence what he's saying to, to Abraham, is that there, that there is nothing, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing that you have done to make God love you any less than what he loves you right now. It is a gift by God's grace and by the way, his approval and his presence comes to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is all that we need for everlasting joy. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you really think about that. That's the promise of the gospel. So, so okay, let me get this right, uh, Pastor Ray. So you're saying, so if I put my faith in Jesus, then, then I can have the very presence of God, and with the presence of God, this seeing and experiencing God, I can have fulfillment and fruitfulness unlike I've ever experienced before. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. But, but they didn't know about Jesus. Oh, 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 yeah, they did. They looked ahead to the promise of the Messiah because this is, let me look on the next point. This is an Old Testament picture pointing to the New Testament person of Christ. Did you notice in verse 16 he said offspring, singular? And then he goes on to explain it. He's saying this is all fulfilled in Christ. So they looked ahead to the Messiah. We look back to the Messiah. But we are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want that verified, you can look in the fourth chapter of Romans, makes that very clear, and also uh, Hebrews 11. So Old Testament people were saved as we're saved. They looked ahead, we look back. That's what he's saying here. So this is an Old Testament picture pointing to the New Testament person of Christ. It's an Old Testament type of the New Testament truth. Verse, verse 16, offspring, Christ. So the whole Bible is about who? 
It's about Jesus. From cover to cover, the Old Testament predicts God's rescuer and the New Testament presents God's rescuer. Jesus made that clear in Luke chapter 24, verse 27 and 44, and then in John 5, 39 through 40. So here's number three on your notes. How much faith do you need to receive the promise of the gospel through Christ Jesus? So So he's made this promise. This promise is available to us today, this morning. We can know and experience his presence, and, and believe me, when you know his presence, when you're interacting with God, you know the God of the, of the galaxies, you're going to live a fulfilled life, regardless of your circumstances, of the people, of the things in your life, and you're going to live a fruitful life. He's going to reveal himself through you to those around you. How much faith do you need to, you need to receive the promise of the gospel through Christ Jesus? Just enough to reach out and grab it. It's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. And so, back to our text, verses 15 and 17 through 18, basically he's saying it is based on God's promise, not our performance. So, if I give you a promise and I say I'm going to give you $1,000 through a promise, and uh, what would you need to do to get it? Collect it. Show up. Believe now. If I if I have a history of not being very uh, uh, dependable, trustworthy, you might doubt that. And oftentimes, people will doubt this promise. And and I just typically say, well, you just don't know God. Get to know Him, and then the more you get to know Him, the more you will trust Him because He's unbelievably trustworthy. He's faithful, and um, and so so if I gave you this promise of a thousand dollars, all you need to do is is show up. Now, now here's the difference between this promise and performance. In a promise covenant, it all depends on the promiser. It has nothing to do with the promisee. All you have to do is believe. In a law or performance covenant, it all has to do with the promisee, whether you do what's asked. And it, it can either come strictly on the basis of the promiser or strictly on the basis of the prom, uh, or the performance of the promised seed, but it can't be both. It, you can't have both of these. If I say, well, I'm going to do this, I'll give you $1,000. If you do that, that's law. It's based on your performance. So unless you, you hit the marks of the performance, then you get, get the prize, you get the $1,000, you get whatever. But what it's saying here, this is what's so fabulous about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's based on promise. It's a promise. It's ours. And all we need to do is put our faith in Jesus. Now, without Genesis 15, you will not understand uh, Galatians 3. And you will really not understand the Bible. In fact, Genesis 15, it was was stunning when I began to understand the truth of Genesis 15 a number of years ago. It just, it hit me, it just landed on me, and it was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Now, let me explain a little bit of Genesis 15. So God has spoken to Abraham, made this promise, began to interact with Abraham and says, I'm going to give you land and lineage. I'm going to give you fulfillment and fruitfulness in your life. And Abraham goes off and um, rescues Lot, his nephew, from some uh, kings who had abducted him and his whole family. And so he goes out and rescues them. And in chapter 15, he comes back and there's some fear, obviously, from retaliation. And also, I think, some fear from whether or not God's going to actually fulfill his promises. 
And uh, God speaks to him in chapter 15. This is what he says. Very profoundly, he says, listen, Abraham, I am, I am your shield and great reward. And those, those, you know, that characterization of God in itself is just amazing. And he's just saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm your security. You don't need to be stressed out. You don't need to be afraid. Oh, and by the way, I'm your satisfaction. You'll never be more secure and satisfied than when you look to me and, and trust in me. And then what's fascinating about chapter 15, it's just packed full of doubt. Abraham, the father of our faith, is doubting. He says, yeah, but I understand that. Yeah, God, I know that, but, but my wife is beyond childbearing years. How am I going to have lineage? And uh, he's really struggling with doubt. And by the way, I don't think that chapter would have even been in the Bible if if, and, and this, what happens in this chapter, if Abraham hadn't expressed his doubt and struggled with doubt and been out in the open with his doubt, and it's fascinating because God almost like takes him by the shoulder and walks him outside at night and says, Abraham, count the stars. And so Abraham begins to count the stars. One, two, three, four, five, 10, 20, 30, 40. I can't, I can't count the stars. And he goes, bingo. God says, hey, so shall your offspring be beyond your ability to count. By the way, did you know that from that day to this day, there's been billions of people who have confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Billions. They outnumber the stars. He couldn't couldn't number them. And that's part of that. And so what happens is that, so when he does that, he says, hey, so shall your offspring be. Abraham said, believed. Verse 6, chapter 15 of, of Genesis, believed, and it was, a, it was counted to him as righteousness. But right after that, it goes right into some doubting again. How many of you have had that struggle? You put your faith in God, the next day you walk out of church, oh, you're hit with doubt. And I love it. He's the father of our faith. He's struggling with doubt. So not, now he's not doubting God so much. He's doubting himself. Am I going to be able to follow? Am I going to be able to pull this off? And so God does something really amazing and he tells Abraham I want you to get these animals and I want you to cut these animals up and what's fascinating about this is that Abraham lived in an oral storytelling culture where they made contracts by acting them out so cutting an animal in half and he's going to cut a number of animals in half and walking between the pieces in essence was saying if I don't fulfill my vow According to this contract, may I be cut up like this animal. That's how they made contracts. In fact, you can follow up on that and see in, in, I put it on your notes there, Jeremiah 34, 18. Imagine if we started doing that today. There'd be less defaults in contracts, wouldn't there? Okay, go ahead, walk through the pieces there, these, this animal, that's what's going to happen to you if you don't follow through. And that's, that's what's a, a, a amazing about this, about this contract. And, and, but what's amazing about this covenant that God is making with Abraham is who walks between the pieces and who doesn't walk between the pieces. Because, I mean, because in this day, if you're making a contract with a king, with someone who's much more superior than you, uh, it, was, it was very common for the king not to have to prove anything by walking between the pieces, but you would have to walk between the pieces to prove, yeah, I'm gonna follow through with what I'm saying here. I'm committed to you, God. But that's not what happens. This is, this is absolutely, it's, it's breathtaking. 
Because what happens here, a, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch represented God's presence as, as will be seen in, on Mount Sinai. But what we see is a one-sided covenant. Only God walks between the pieces and Abraham never does. And in essence, this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying to Abraham and this is what he's saying to us. If I violate this contract to give my presence to you and fulfillment and fruitfulness to your life as a result of my presence in your life, may I be torn to pieces. And if you violate this contract, may I be torn to pieces. And he was torn to pieces on the cross. So, so here's the point. So it goes back to the question, as we were talking about before, are God's blessings conditional or unconditional? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, both. Yes, Jesus met the conditions of the law so that God could love and bless us unconditionally. Amen. It's through a promise. And when that landed on me a number of years ago, oh my goodness, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's for, your, for your asking, for your taking. Open up your heart, reach out to him. So it goes back to how much faith do you need to receive the promise of the gospel through Jesus? Just enough to reach out and grab it. Now, let me talk about that. How much, how much do you have to, have to have to trust in order to be saved. So let me give you an analogy here. If you're falling off of a cliff and you're on your way to death, you're gonna fall to your death. If you look up and you see one branch sticking out of the side of the cliff, how much faith do you need to have for it to save you? And, and, the, and the branch is certainly strong enough to hold you. And the answer is just enough faith to grab it. Because see, it's not, it's not the strength of your faith, it's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith. Does that make sense? So, so if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty about the branch, but you don't grab it, you're gonna fall to your death. But even if your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty about the branch being able to support you, and yet it, it can, and you reach out to that branch, regardless of your uncertainty and your doubt, it will save you. It will save you. So even with all of your doubts and uncertainties, reach out to him. Reach out to him. See, we live in a world today that says, show me and I'll believe. In essence, God says, believe and I'll show you. I will, I will show you and I will reveal myself to you. That's the essence, so reach out to him. I'm, I beg you, reach out to God, trust in God, look to God, even with all of your uncertainty and doubts, even with all of the hurts and pain and struggles and everything you got, reach out to him, open your heart to him, and you will see that he is faithful. He loves you. You can, you can trust in his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power. It's amazing. Okay, now, that's, that's the promise. Oh, wow. Woo. We could stop right there and in the service, but we're not. Okay. We're going to keep going because we've got a few more. So what is the purpose of the law? Because he tells us what is the purpose of the law, verses 19 through 24. The law doesn't save us, but reveals our need for the promise of the gospel. It shows us our need for the promise of the gospel. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The, the rest of verse 19 and verse 20 is extremely cryptic. No one is sure what Paul means or how it fits into the argument, but it is, it's not really needed for the argument. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed uh, be by the law. So, so the law is, like I said a couple weeks ago, it's, it's a mirror. You can stand in front of the mirror all day long. It's not going to change how you look. How good you look or maybe how bad you may look. The older I get, it's bad, okay? And, uh, but it's not going to change you. It's like an x-ray machine. You break your arm and you go in, you have an x-ray. The x-ray machine's not gonna, it's not going to fix you. It will reveal to you where the break is. That's the law. Number two on your notes here under this idea, what is the purpose of the law? So the law makes us see and feel that we are morally helpless. We are not simply sinners but prisoners of sin, helpless to free or cure ourselves. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, that's what he's mean by that, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And did you notice this, the language here? But the scripture or the law imprisoned everything under sin. So the law shows us that we do, uh, we do not just fall short of God's will, requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power requiring a rescue. The law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. In uh, verses 23 through 24, Paul uses two metaphors to characterize the way the law works. So it works as a guard, as in a prison, and then as a guardian, as in child rearing, to help us see our desperate need for Christ. So most of us aren't as desperate for Christ as we should be because we consider ourselves as basically good people. Not because we compare ourselves to God's holy standard, but because we compare our strengths with others' weaknesses. At least I'm not as much of a gossiper as, as this person is, even though I'm gossiping about them right now. Um... I mean, that's what we do. We, we compare ourselves with others, and that's partly why I really enjoy hanging out with some of you, because when I look at your lives, I feel really good about my life. So thank you for making me feel better about me when I see you in all of your struggles. You know what? You know what's so fast? You know, this is what I love about the, about, uh, the gospel, is that it levels the playing field. Because why would I ever compare myself with you? If I would really compare myself with God's holy standard, I'm shot. I'm, I'm messed up. I mean, take, for instance, the great, great commandment. Jesus summarized uh, all of the law and the prophets in, in two commands. What are the commands? You guys remember? Great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just take that, those two commandments just to see how, how well we do. I, I mean, I could spend all day on it, and, and all of us are going to fall short of, of even those two commandments. But William, Bishop William Temple put it this way, what, what you do in your solitude is your true religion. It was very convicting for me a number of years ago, and it's really been very helpful for me to look at my own idolatry and my own sinfulness. And um, in other words, where does your mind love to dwell? Where does it go instinctively and naturally? Whatever it goes to is your real God, is what he's saying. 
So let me ask you this. Do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude? I think if you really reflected on that for any length of time, it would frighten you. You'd realize, oh my goodness, my, my thoughts very seldom even go back to God. Do you love God so much that he dominates your solitude? Where does your mind love to dwell? Does it instinctively and naturally dwell on God? His attributes, his beauty, and his glory. Do you love God so much that you are content with any circumstances, living your life free of inordinate anxiety, anger, depression, because you, are, because you always have what you most want, and that is God? That's a, that's a pretty high, high bar, pretty high standard. I don't, and I'm sure neither do you. And uh, because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is that we fail to see how beautiful, how satisfying, how amazing God is. Because listen to me, if he's that amazing, man, that's where our thoughts should go instantaneously during our times of solitude. Immediately back to him, oh, just enjoying him, fellowshipping with him, having him at the center of our lives. But quite frankly, it, it isn't. We're, we think about any number of things more so than him, and, and any number of things are more important than him. So it shows, shows our desperate need for God. Here's another question. Do you meet the needs of your neighbors with the same amount of thought, emotion, and action as you would meet your own needs? See, that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you and a coworker are competing for the same promotion, but your coworker gets it instead of you, and you are as, as happy for him as if it were you getting the promotion. Do you do that? <laughs> Probably not. That dirty, rotten scoundrel, he doesn't deserve it as much as I do. I mean, that, that's probably, that'd be more of of how we respond. Can you imagine if we really begin to just live by this great commandment, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we, that he dominated our solitude, that we found contentment and courage and compassion to the degree that we need it regardless of what's going on in our life. And then we begin to think of other people's needs with our thoughts, our emotion, and our action as much as we think of our own needs. Can you imagine what our homes would be like? Or this church or this community would be like? I mean, it would, it would transform our lives. And yet we fall short of that. Shows you how desperate we are for God. Verse uh, number three on your notes. Unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was. See, if, you, if we think we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. We all fit into one of two categories. You hear me say this a lot. You're desperate. There are those that are desperate and know it. Oh, they're desperate for Jesus. I need Jesus. That's, that's what I saw last Wednesday night when there was close to 200 people that showed up here for linger night. They were like, ah, oh, we need him. We want him. We want everything that he has for us. We want to interact with him. We want our lives to be more fulfilling and fruitful. So there, there are those that are desperate and know it and those that are desperate and are out of touch with it. They don't know it. Maybe because they've medicated themselves or they're thinking, you know, if I just get this or if I have that, then I'll, I'll be content. No, 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 none of that stuff. There's nothing in creation that can bring you the satisfaction that only the creator can bring you. That's the bottom line. That's a fact. And so until we come to those terms, Jesus went to have dinner with a Pharisee. It's found in the seventh chapter of Luke. And uh, this guy was really rude, this Pharisee, to Jesus. And while they're having dinner, this woman comes in 
a sinful woman, as is said in the scripture, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet, and Jesus makes a very profound statement to this Pharisee, because he's totally out of touch with, of his desperation for God, because he was very self-righteous. And uh, this woman was very much in touch with her need for God, and Jesus says, whoever is forgiven much does what? Loves much. One of the reasons why we struggle with our love for God and our passion for God and our appetite for God, we don't realize how much he has forgiven us. We don't understand the promise of the gospel. And that's what he was saying about this woman. She's smack dab in the sweet spot of understanding the promise of the gospel and therefore her life is gonna be unbelievably fulfilling and fruitful as a result of her interaction with me and the Father. That's what he's saying. Now, now that the law has done its job, to lead us to Christ, does this mean we can now forget about it? Absolutely not. I mean, let's, let's draw out the analogy of child rearing here a little bit because that's what the purpose of the law is, like, like a, a guardian leading the child to Jesus. I mean, isn't it the design of child rearing that when, when the child grows to maturity, he or she lives out the beliefs and the values of, of their parent or their guardian? I mean, isn't that, that your hope for your children? I know my children are grown and gone now, and I want them to continue to, you know, I, I pray for them all the time that they would live out both Nancy and I, our values and our beliefs. I pray like crazy for them, and now I got grandkids, and I'm like praying like crazy for my grandkids to do the same. I mean, is that true? Those of you that have kids? Yeah, no doubt about it. Your hope is that your children are, will begin to internalize your beliefs and values and live according to them, not because they have to. Yeah, while they're in the home, you kind of, you really force them to, but at some point, you want them to make that transition from have to to want to, that their hearts are captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ as much as your heart is. See, your prayer is that your little midget demons don't grow up to become teenage mutant ninja demons, okay? That's not what you want. You want them to take on, internalize your beliefs and values. And so it is with our, with our Savior and our King. Here's how does the promise and the law go together. Number one, when salvation, when salvation by promise gets a hold of our heart, we are filled with gratitude and desire to be like our Savior by obeying the law. So how do we become more loving people? How do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors, ourselves? Because there's no doubt about it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. That, that verse in itself is pretty spectacular. It's amazing, just living in that. But how do we become more loving people? How do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that he dominates our solitude? And how do we, how do we create that atmosphere that I'm just as concerned with, with your well-being as I am with my well-being? That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. How does that happen? By trying harder? By gritting your teeth? By pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? No, 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 no. We love him because he did what? He first loved us. 1 John 4, 19, here's the key, here's the key. You gotta get this. Love for God and others grows out of an experience of his love for us. So here's my question for you. Are you regularly and consistently experiencing his love? Where you're reading his word and you're taking his word and the reality of his love and the, and the promise of the gospel. From your head, it's intellectually coherent, but it's existentially compelling to you it, down into your heart until it catches fire 
and the reality of his love overwhelms you. How often does that happen to you? And I think that's what I saw this last Wednesday night during our linger night. I think there was a group of people, and I'm not saying that if you didn't show up, you, you don't feel the same way. I believe you do feel the same way because you're here this morning. You want that to happen to your life. But what I'm saying is that, man, you're just hungry for more of God. You want to experience his love because it's out of that experience of his love, then he begins to dominate your solitude. You begin to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, and then you begin to love others because there's something that happens in your life. When you have your contentment and completeness in him, you're, you're not only God glorifying, you're thinking less of yourself and you're thinking more of God, but you're also people kind of oriented. You're more oriented toward others. It's just natural. It becomes an overflow of your life. When you're living in the reality of his love, it's a wonderful place to be. So, so when your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, the most important thing you could do is to, to reflect on his love and to think, wait a minute, I'm his beloved child in whom he is well pleased and that's mine. That's the promise of the gospel. I can interact with him and know him and out of this will bring unbelievable fulfillment and fruitfulness like I've never experienced before. Oh God, help me to sense your presence in my life. Thank you that I can know you and I can experience you in my life. See, in doing that and walking in the reality of that and practicing his presence, see that's, that's understanding the, the, the promise of, of the gospel. And, uh, and then it says in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Number two, the promise of the gospel makes it safe for us to confess and repent of our failure to keep the law because we are not saved by the law but for the law. Now, 1 John, I, I love 1 John. It's written by John, okay, makes sense. And... Uh, and he also wrote the Gospel of John. But in the Gospel of John, he consistently talks about how he's the beloved. I mean, he's just living it. I love that. Oh, I'm beloved. Yeah. Almost like he's kind of rubbing it in our face a little bit. I'm more loved than you. But I don't think he means that. But, but you could say, I am beloved, man. He loves me. I've never been more loved by God. This is, this is wild. This is crazy. This is the best experience in life is knowing his love. And so he's talking about this, and he says, hey, by the way, I want to share this love with you. You can have the same kind of love. You can have the same kind of joy, and it comes as a result of fellowshipping with him, and that's what that whole book is, First John. And then he goes on right the front end of the book. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why would he say that? Because as we walk in the light, guess what the light does? It, dispo it, it exposes our darkness. And so when we read God's word, we walk with him, he's going to expose the darkness in our life. And so he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he balances the playing field. If you think that you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. So he's just saying, hey, point blank, we all struggle we all have issues in our life. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fail to see how glorious and beautiful and satisfying God is. So we tend to live for ourselves. We, we tend to do that. That's what he's saying. But then he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's the deal. Because we have the assurance of God's love no matter what, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you have done to make him love you any any less than what he loves you now because we have the assurance of God's love no matter what. We don't have to pretend to be something we're not. Amen. We don't have to do that. See, 
We can be honest about our struggles with sin. The church should be a place where people can be free to say that they're sinners. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. Welcome. Because you all are sinners. We're all sinners. We all need a savior. We're desperate for a savior. And so let me ask you this. Who could I call who could tell me how you have been thinking and feeling in the last two weeks and what you're struggling with? Are you that open and honest? See, this, this should be a place where people can come in and say, man, my marriage isn't doing very well. We're gonna kill each other if something doesn't happen. Huh? You guys have felt like that before. I know Nancy has felt like that a lot. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I have uh, awakened in the middle of the night with a pillow over my face a few times. And her on top of the pillow. Jesus, help him. I mean, this needs to be a safe place where people could come and say, you know what, my kids, we raised them the best way we, we knew how. And man, they have gone south. Man, we're, our hearts are broken over that. And when people ought to be able to say, yeah, we're here with you. We all struggle together. This ought to be a place where people come in and say, man, I really struggle with lust. I have same-sex attraction issues that I'm really working through. Or I have adulterous thoughts that just bombard me over and over again. I'm struggling with anger. I had a guy last night come up to me and said, man, I have anger like you wouldn't believe. It just raises its ugly head from time to time. And I had a chance to pray with him. And uh, that's, what, that's what church is about. So the promise of the gospel makes it safe for us to confess and repent our failure to keep the law because we are not saved by the law but for the law. And that's how we find the healing. And here's the last one. This gives us greater endurance in our obedience because we are motivated by grateful joy rather than fearful compliance. See, our, our obedience isn't for our sake to earn right standing with God. We have right standing with God. Therefore, we do it for his glory. So the gospel makes you, as I said, God glorifying and others oriented because you already have your treasure. You have your treasure in him. Imagine you get a notice that someone left you some money, but for various reasons you assume that it is a very modest amount. You get busy you don't get around even to checking on it for quite a while and finally you do so and are astonished to discover it was a fortune and you had not been doing anything with it. You were actually rich but had been living poor. You were actually rich but living poor. If you don't understand the promise of the gospel, you are actually rich and living poor. The promise of the gospel is that by grace through faith in Jesus, listen to me, we have the wealth of his presence. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance for us. You have the wealth of his presence. And listen to me, he will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. We have the comfort of his love and nothing can separate you from his love. We have the strength of his power, resurrection power, available to us. That's amazing. And then we have the significance of being called his child. We're going to talk more about that next week. Beloved children of God. We're going to talk about how, how do we experience that, 
deep in our heart. We'll talk more about that next week. And we have so many, many other infinite and eternal blessings that are priceless. Let me just end this by quoting to you just what the psalmist has to say about the law because this is what will happen in your heart. There's gonna be such grateful joy and you're just gonna wanna want him to dominate your solitude and live in the reality of his law and his word and interact with him. Psalm 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Blessed is the man who meditates, who delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. It dominates the solitude. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Psalm 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, sweeter than pumpkin spice latte from Desert Breeze Cafe. Yeah, baby. I love it. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, great riches. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God. Father God, thank you for the promise of the gospel that by grace through faith, in the person and work of Christ, indispensable and costly love for us on the cross. We have the wealth of your presence and many, 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 many other things, other blessings. Thank you, Father, that your presence brings to us fulfillment and fruitfulness that are incomparable. Out of grateful joy for our salvation, may your law, your word be light to our path, a delight to our hearts and honey on our lips as we live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said...